Um, what is the official name of today, Pete? Epiphany. Yes, that's right. Um, which has something to do with the, um, the wise men. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 2. And the action in this part of Matthew takes place after the birth. And you will know the story so well, uh, but please listen to it again. Just try and listen to it again. I'm going to ask you the question, is this myth or did it really happen? Okay. Uh, Because only Matthew mentions it. Luke doesn't mention it. It's in none of the other Gospels. Did this happen or is it a myth? It's trying to get your juices turning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote the prophet, which is Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child, and when you found him, bring me words so that I can come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And you can find that in Hosea. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And you can find that in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
remarkable thing about this passage is its brevity. Imagine that if it had happened now, it would be on the news ten days running until something else happened. And then it would be forgotten until the end of the year when we remember what happened in the year. So this is just remarkable for its brevity. Wise men, so we're told, most of my information that I'm going to share with you now, I get from a guy called Alfred Edersheim, who lived over a century ago. He was a Messianic Jew and an academic, and his, his study was in the field of Jewish literature, Jewish scripture, the Targums, and so on. Um, and he's very thorough. He asks the question, did Matthew include this because there was some kind of ancient legend that Gentile kings would visit the Messiah like this? In other words, is it something which is put in to satisfy a general perception, a myth which comes out of ancient Jewish theology or expectation? And he concludes, looking back over the history and literature of the time, there was no such expectation. In, in, in fact, he says, the idea of three wise men coming from the East in this fashion was, was just a gross misrepresentation of any expectations the Jewish theologians had of world worship of their Messiah. This was just a caricature and a gross one at that. There is no way that Matthew would have put this in his gospel to confirm some ancient ideas of the Gentiles worshipping their Messiah. The only possible reason that he could put this in is that it actually happened. As to who these three wise men were, or were there not three? We only say three, not because the scripture says, but because there were three gifts. So, it's a, it's a fair guess, but that's all it is. And nobody knows where these wise men came from, although in the ancient, in those days, there were different classes of wise men. There were the wise men, who were the charlatans and astrologers, we, they might write in our daily newspapers these days, and tell you that you're going to have an absolutely fantastic day, and it's going to work out fine for you. Don't live by them, will you? You'll get your life in a terrible mess if you do. So there were the charlatans, and there were those who were sort of kind of mystic astronomers with a touch of uh, priestly mysticism and, and studying the mysterious, a sort of ancient sort of um, priestly scientists in a way, with a Persian background, who had spread out from Persia because there was a, a spreading out of, of this this group of people across the East. So they came from somewhere in the East, but they brought gold, frankincense and myrrh. And when important personages bring gifts to a king or to royalty somewhere else, they will often bring a gift which is representative of the products of their land. Herod, the great, who ruled at this time, had control of the trade routes 
from Yemen that came up through the Arabian Peninsula to the Mediterranean. These trade routes, um, um, people came up with their perfumes and their precious commodities, you know, the stuff you'd get at the front of, you know, in sort of all these sort of stores within stores when you go into, you know, spray this, sort of do this, squirt that, places that the, the ladies like and I loathe. Walk through them like this. But these were the trade routes that brought the precious stuff. And so they would have come through Jerusalem. So it's been suggested that these wise men could well have come from the Yemen area, using the trade routes to come to Jerusalem, bringing gifts which represented the wealth of their own country. And another suggestion which might confirm this, another idea that might confirm this, is that the kings of Yemen from 120 BC until just after the birth of Christ professed the Jewish faith. So if the wise men had come from that area, they would have been aware of the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, which was growing in those days. So they'd have, they'd have been aware of the expectations, they'd have been aware of the superstitions of the day, that when a bright star rises, it's, it signifies a great personage. They would have been aware of what was happening in the heavens, and they would have put two and two together, and maybe quite easily have come to this conclusion, let's drop everything and go and see this king which has been born. Now the thing is, did God create a star to get the wise men from wherever, say Yemen, to Jerusalem? Or would this bright star have been in the sky irrespective of the wise men? Those people could not understand astro astronomical calendars, have worked back and with with um, what, we're, what I understand to be complete accuracy, have reckoned on something happening. It's not the date that we place for the birth of Christ, but it's a few years earlier than our tradition places the birth of Christ, just four or so years later. There was, it can be traced back, and it's something which happens every 800 years. It was a conjunction of Saturn and I think it was Mercury, which, where the two came together and seemed to be alongside each other in the skies, it seems to create one great big brigger, bright star. That happens 800 years. It was noticed in 1600 by a man called Kepler. And it's been charted back that this would have happened. And that the following year, Mars would have joined that, that sort of conjunction so that this star would have been even more bright in the sky. And, and quite, because it only happens every 800 years, it would be startling to these wise men. And they would want to be asking in their context and their culture what this signified. So the point that is being made is that this conjunction would have been there irrespective of the birth of Jesus irrespective of the wise man putting two and two together. And God has, in his grace, uses these things, doesn't he? 
God operates and uses these things. And he brought these things together. And these wise men then eventually found their way to Herod. Now Herod is known as the Herod the Great. His wickedness is immense. He was also, he was actually in some ways a great king for Israel at the time. But only because of the works he did. He was a great builder. The temple was built. Masada Masada was built. Many great things were built. It said that if they hadn't closed the seven wonders of the world uh, idea before Herod was born, then at least three of the things which he had built would have been included in the wonders of the world. But he was a wicked man. He was a jealous man. He was a vicious man. He was paranoid. He had some of his own children. He had his own wife and her supposed lover murdered out of sheer jealousy. This slaughter of the innocents was probably about 20 young children. Same as in America. Terrible, but by no means the least of his wicked deeds. So, for my money... This happened. Absolutely no doubt. This happened. And so it's included in the annals of the life of Christ. These wise men came. They offered the treasures of their own land. And whatever they understood by it, they knelt down and they worshipped this one who was the Messiah, the promised King of Israel, born in Bethlehem. Then they're warned to go home by another route. Joseph is warned to take his child away into Egypt and 20 or so children are slaughtered. And that raises all kinds of questions for me, especially when Matthew then says, thus it was fulfilled. Did God predict this? Did God intend this? Why didn't he warn the rest of the children? Why did he only warn his own family, as it were, if I can put it in that way? What is going on here? All those kind of questions, for me, then interfere with the wonder of the fact that a child is born and angels have appeared and they've appeared in dreams and out of dreams and they've spoken to wise men and they've spoken to Joseph and they've spoken to Mary and they've appeared to angels and something extraordinary has happened. And these then questions come in and they crowd my mind and they sully my joy at what has happened. Because what has happened is extraordinary but also what has happened is terrible. And the scripture seems to say, so it was fulfilled. So I want to leave it there for a moment. We've got this wonderful, wonderful birth of Christ. Extraordinary expectation. And then we've got this, this slaughter. We'll come back to it in a minute. Okay, short interval. We're going to listen to a track from a Matt Redman CD. Uh, the CD is called 10,000 Reasons. And then Elaine is going to share a bit. Elaine Masco, and then we'll be back to Dave. Uh, Pete asked me on Friday night to share a bit from um, 
our joint experiences over the last couple of years. And I'm aware that some of you have walked with us during those times, and perhaps this is a bit of an update. Um, Pete asked me to speak of hope, which on Friday I found quite difficult because um, I didn't have a lot of hope on Friday. But I went back to what Dave had through the last, well, all his life, but really came out in the last two years of his life. And it was a rock-solid hope. And I went back yesterday, and I know some of you read our blog while in those two years. And I just found this entry, which I will read, and then I'll go on to give you the update of where I'm at and what's happened since. This was from <clears throat> December 09, when, well, it'll, I'll read it. Saw our consultant oncologist on Wednesday, where she repeated her offer for extra aggressive treatment, high on side effects, but probably low on benefits. She backed our decision to decline. As I said to her, the prospect of heaven was more appealing than even one of my more agreeable days here on planet Earth. Her comment was, you're very brave. Am I? This is Dave writing. I don't think so. Bravery would be making such a decision without knowing one's destination. For the Christian, my status of the last 46 years, heaven is the reality that Jesus spoke of. There is plenty of room for you in my father's house. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? As St. Paul said elsewhere, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The Christian life is an exchange. I surrender control of my life to Jesus and in return receive his eternal life that speaks of quality of life down here and continuance of life in the hereafter. So death is but a station on the time-space continuum. My attitude to death is not the product of positive thinking or the outworking of K Sarah Sarah. It is deeply rooted in the certainty and hope that comes through knowing Jesus as friend and Lord. The important message in all this is do not enter the box unless your exit is clear. That's Dave talking. He had that very certain hope in his Father God. And I came across, um, I had this CD for Christmas, and I had it playing on the way to work, and I thought, yeah, that is the experience I've had. God has been faithful. He was faithful during that two-year walk. And some of you um, that walked with us knew that very early on, we had the vision, not the vision, that's too classy, um, the thought of snow poles being our guide. And in Scotland, where Dave loved, quite often if it was deep in snow, you didn't know where the path was, but you had these snow poles just sticking out the ground to guide. And after Pete spoke to me on Friday, um, last night I suddenly realized, yeah, I didn't spot them. But actually, those snow poles have been there guiding me in times when I didn't really know what I was going. My mantra was, don't think, just do. I just keep walking. Um, but as I look back, there were certain snow, bolts, snow poles, you know, accidental, so-called accidental meetings in Tesco's about new wine and going to new wine and hearing speakers talk to me about um, why some people are healed and some people aren't. Um, the fact that the kingdom has come, but it's not completely here yet, so we're all on a journey. 
Things like that were very helpful. Things like Marky and Ruth moving into me. What a snowpole. What a blessing. What a help. And some of you know that I work in Cardiff, and one uh, day I was driving over the bridge, and that great uh, hymn came to me, Guide me, oh, that great Jehovah, pilgrim in this barren land. Another snowpole that really spoke to me and really helped me. Lots of snowpoles, lots of friendships that have kept me going. And then one time, I was in Albania and um, not coping very well. And very early on, Anna bought this psalm, Psalm 71, that we read over and over during our walk. And I was reading it yet again that day and got to Psalm 71, verse 20. You have allowed me to suffer much hardship but you will restore me to life again and lift me up from the depths of the earth. You will restore me to even greater honor and comfort me once again. And uh, those of you that know me know I don't always make it, but I can bear witness to the snow poles in the ground and to God's faithfulness. And there are bottles and there are scars. You heard the CD, but God is faithful and he has walked with me as he walked with Dave. So, uh, <laughs> I just pass that on. It's just another story, isn't it? No, it's not just another story. It's your story. I think you look around this room, everyone, you look in our faces. I remember walking up the street here 30 odd years ago and seeing a very old, I'm not saying you're old and wizened, but an old wizened lady with so many lines on her face trundling past me the other way. And it suddenly occurred to me that every line tells a story. Everyone's got volumes in them to be written round to encourage others. And they're all different, and that's your story. So we just say, God bless you, thank you. And before I carry on, I just don't feel I can carry on for a moment. We just sit and ponder for a while. A voice was heard in Rama, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I asked Pete if I could preach this sermon six months ago. Because there are chunks of the Bible which we miss out. So that 
We read the good bits about David and Goliath, for instance, but don't read the bit about David never speaking to his wife again. We're not so comfortable with that. And we talk about the shepherds and the wise men, but I've never heard or aware of any or many people who have ever preached about the slaughter of the innocent. Uh, because it's not suitable for our comfortable faith. And so I have these questions rise, and I, and I want to speak them. I want to say, God, I do not understand this, but I don't want to be si- I don't want to stop praising you for what you're doing, but I don't want to pretend this other stuff didn't happen. But I have to say, the nearer I've got to preaching, the more presumptuous I've felt about saying, I'm going to do it. And the less able I feel to do it. And this has taken a turn which I never expected because it's come a, become a challenge to me to ask where my questions are coming from. I think my questions, God, is it fair that you only warn Joseph and Mary and not the others? God, is this a prediction? Is this something that you destined? You know, those kind of questions are all the kinds of questions when over the years I've heard when I've been going round people's homes, especially the homes of those who are not Christians. But not only them. But when people are just being really out of the heart, this is how I feel. These are the kind of questions which get asked. And I've not been slow in asking the same ones. The question that came back to me in preparation is, where are my questions coming from? The Bible tells me to keep my whole spirit and soul and body for Christ. But my questions, maybe not yours, but these questions often come out of not so much the spirit, but the body, the emotions the reason in me. They come from this earthly, this fleshy, this man side of me, which is capable of saying, it ain't fair, or why me? The questions, for me at least, often come out of that bit, which places me somehow in the centre of the universe, and other things are happening to me, and for me. Are you with me? I'm not saying that everybody does that, but I find that that is something which, on reflection, I do. And while we were praying as elders yesterday morning, I had this extraordinary mini-experience, and it was like 3D, of 3D film. How, in my mind's eye, I'm looking at the world that we're praying for, and then suddenly, as though we had switched from 2D to 3D, and this world is now rushing on and rushing over me, and it's taken an entire new dynamic, which I never expected to be there, or had forgotten that was there, and it's this dynamic that God is in this place. And I look at these things too often, I look at these things, and I look at, uh, and I listen to them, and, and formulate the questions, without remembering that God is in this place. It's as though he's to serve me. But I'm here to serve him. 
And that's where I find my greatest satisfaction and joy and peace. So, the last time I saw 3D was at IMAX at Bristol when they had great whales and looking through the things, this great whale suddenly comes towards me and he's going over my head. Whoa, that is awesome. Well, we speak about a world in which God is everywhere and with us. But we never see it in the 3D of the spirit life, which is how we ought to be seeing it, because the spirit should be directing our soul and our body. And we are complex. I'm not saying we should be so spiritually we're no earthly use. I'm saying we should be a combination of these things in which we see this earthly, tangible, material world, but with God there. Am I making sense? And then when I begin to look at this from that perspective, I see something different, which astonishes me. Because... I see the scripture and I see that God didn't stop Job, for instance, losing his family and his, and his flocks and his herds. God didn't stop that. I see the story of Rachel. And this Rachel weeping for her children starts in Genesis when, when her husband and her and her family are coming from one country and moving They're sort of emigrating to another country and she's pregnant with a a child which later became known as Benjamin. But when she gives birth near Bethlehem, she dies in labor. That's where Rachel, Rachel, that's where Bethlehem and Rama comes in to this. But then later in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we have this, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. So now Rachel is weeping for her children, but it's all happening around Rama, around Bethlehem. And uh, that prediction of Jeremiah was actually fulfilled in his lifetime. Because if you then shoot over to Jeremiah chapter 40, you find that the Babylonians have come in and, and, and a whole load of Benjaminites have been gathered together near Bethlehem at Ramah and Rachel is now weeping for her children because they're going off into exile and she will see them no more. So God didn't stop Rachel dying. He didn't stop those people going into exile. He didn't stop Job from suffering. He didn't stop Jesus from dying on a cross. If we want God to stop these things, where does he end the stopping? Does he just stop wars? Or does he stop us fighting with our in-laws as well? And if he stops the fighting, should he stop the lying? And if we don't lie, does he stop the thinking bad things? At what point does he stop stopping? before we all become automatons. God, we look through this 3D and we suddenly see that God is being God in all the things that are going on. And this wickedness is going on all the time, ever since the fall. And this tragedy is going on all the time. 
And what Matthew has done when he quotes this, he's saying that he sees this has been happening and now look, it applies to the Messiah. God is acknowledging that this thing has happened. God acknowledges what happened. God knows what's happening. He sees it. And do we think he enjoys it? Do we think he's dispassionate? I hate evil, says God in Proverbs. Um, Psalm 31, Psalm 1, I mean, says this. Speaking of the wicked and of sinners and of scoffers, the wicked won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. These things are going on, God acknowledges, God hates it. That's why Christ died, to redeem us from it. But God hates it, but it's what men do, isn't it? It's what we do to one another. It's the consequence of our own refusal to acknowledge God. And he's not going to stop it until the day comes. It happens. It's what we've made of the world. And so we get columbines and we get... When I was thinking about this, I was amazed. Three days running... 12th of December, the news came out that British agents, so this is official, had assisted in the murder of an Irish solicitor. Herod was wicked. Well, British agents conspired in wickedness. Next day, the Guardian Online, the British government paid £2 million compensation to Libyan dissident abducted with the help of MI6. Governments do it. Our governments do it. It happens. Same day, Guardian Online reported that the European Court of Human Rights had concluded the CIA had tortured and sodomised a terror suspect who was later released after CIA admitted he was wrongly detained. It's horrible. Same day, Amnesty International accused the Pakistani military of human rights abuses in tribal areas. Next day, Sandy Hook Elementary School, slaughter of the innocents in Newtown, and don't forget Dunblane. It's the world we live in. It happens. But the scripture says God knows and he acknowledges and he hates this stuff. I mustn't go on too long because I think if I'm not careful I will start another sermon. So I will just drop hints. 
as I began to, to look at this and say, Lord, please help me. Help me to try and see this in 3D. I discover that in the birth of this child, there's not just your forgiveness and my salvation at stake here. That's part of what he does. Thank you, God. Christ was crucified for our sins. Scripture says we have peace with God through the blood of his cross. But there was more to it going on than that. There's another ruler of this world. The prince of the power of the air. There is a spiritual world out there that is filled with more than God. Well, no, it's filled with God. But there are other spiritual beings. We read of angels. We read of demons. We read of Satan. Do I understand this? No. But there's a spiritual world out there. And we're told that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So there's a tyrant, there is a cosmological, I don't know if that word exists, a cosmological tyrant in the spiritual spheres whose opposition to the mind of God has gone so far that the evidence of his lying and his murders has been, if you like, um, sort of influenced a fallen humanity. And we see it all around us. And what we see here is that this child being born has come here to actually take on that ultimate spiritual tyrant. And he's not doing it by the rules of this world's warfare. He's doing it God's way. And it begins with this vulnerability, but it continues in vulnerability, and it continues in service, and it continues in sacrifice, but it's strong. And it's powerful. And it's going to withstand the one who has the power of death by going through death to defeat him, as Hebrews puts it. And he's going to be on a cross, unable to move, and in his dying breaths he's going to cry out in an agonized triumph, it's finished! Only I can do that because I'm standing up. But he was pinned to the cross. It's finished! And the attempt of that other great dominion, that tyrant, to bring down God through the vulnerability of God in man has failed. And as a result of that, you and I can be ransomed not just from our sin, but from the fear of death and from the power of death. And that there's 
like Dave wrote, brilliant. I love that phrase. I don't know where he got from. Sort of, before you enter the box, make certain of your exit. That is brilliant. Because that's what the spiritual dimensions, the 3D shows us. That this is not what the world is all about. The world is about God. And us with God. And there's this spiritual warfare going on, which we still have to fight. And we still encounter through these things that happen and which distress, distress and destroy us and throw us into pain and anxiety so that we still have to care for one another and put our arms around one another and weep with one another. But Christ has defeated the power behind that stuff so that we can walk with him through it. And he promises a new heaven and a new earth. I'm so glad you chose that song to begin with because it speaks about that this is the there's an ultimate which is not this it's not just in our dying it's in our beyond in God and what I want to do is I want to finish by quoting a man who was in solitary confinement and then playing a piece of music and then without any other words we will be done I want to challenge you to ask God to help you to see your life in the 3D of his spirit, as it were. Reassess the questions that you're asking. Reassess how you walk through life and whether or not God is really acknowledging this stuff which is going on. He knows. Can you trust him to walk with you through it? This comes from a book written by Richard Vaughan Brandt. It's called Alone with God. It contains sermons which he composed in solitary confinement. For various reasons, as you will discover in a moment, he couldn't write them down, so he, he composed succinct poems to remind him of the sermons. And then, ultimately, when he was out of prison, he was in prison for his faith in Romania. When he was out of prison... Um, he, he tried to recall all these things and write his sermons down. They last about a page or two pages, perhaps a page and a half of A4. Um, and this is from his prologue. I spent three of my 14 years of prison alone in a cell 30 feet below ground with 50 pounds of chains on my feet and manacles on my hands. During this time, I never heard the slightest noise. The guards wore felt-soled shoes, and no one could hear their approach. I never saw a human face except for the torturers whose visage was something less than human. I never saw the sun, moon, stars, rain, or flowers. I never saw a color. I forgot that colors existed, violet, blue, red, yellow. I saw only the gray walls, and my dull grey uniform. I had no book or newspaper, let alone the Bible. I had no pencil and no paper on which to write my thoughts. The only statements we were expected to write were statements accusing ourselves and others. Today, thousands of Christians and other innocents are in similar situations in Vietnamese, Chinese, Sudanese, Pakistani and North Korean prisons. They have long since ceased to ask themselves the usual questions that are in the minds of men. 
Instead they ask, do I live or vegetate? Is what I experience still existence? Is the whole of life only a nightmare? Does a God exist? Does existence exist? If God exists, so what? What is the good of his existence if he doesn't help us? If he can't overthrow evil, how could he make a world? He says, if we try and live by dogma, David and Job were wrong to argue with God. (laughs) From a dogmatic point of view, the author of Esther was wrong not to write a single word of praise to God. From the dogmatic point of view, John the Baptist was wrong when in prison he questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah. And dogmatists could even find fault with Jesus because um, he trembled in Gethsemane. But he says, life, even religious life, is not concerned with dogmas. He goes on to say, a man went to his pastor asking advice about some difficult problems. The pastor replied, kneel in church for two hours and you will have the answer. The man said, do you really believe that the good Lord will appear to me in two hours' time and clarify my thinking? No, said the pastor, but you will realise in that time that you can live well enough with the questions unanswered and keep trusting in God.